everyone. Welcome back to Tent Talks. We took last week off and it's nice to be back. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. To do a quick check-in individually and then collectively. To start, I'll do an individual check-in and then we'll do collective check-ins. So for me, I am moving this week. Wow. And it's exciting and it's hectic. And it snowed the first big snow of the season. And so, and gotten really cold. And gotten really cold. So it's kind of this weird rush and slow down because the snow brings the slow and the cozy. And yet my external world is like, get everything packed and moved and ready. And so there's the nature came to the rescue to help me to remind me to slow down. (laughs) The question really is, can we, right? Can we do it? Yeah. It's so hard. We have an expectation. We have the holiday busyness. Mm -hmm. It seems like everybody is doubling down on busyness and plans, functions, social events, and really check in with yourself, try to slow down. If you need it, take a break. Don't go to that thing. If it's just not working out, say no, (laughs) say no. (laughs) Yeah. Liz, how are you doing? Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to do that. Yesterday, I think I was hit with one of those waves and I just said, I need to rest today. And I tried to just stay in bed more of the day. I did do things, but on those days, I kind of just don't have an expectation. And Mm -hmm. that feels kind of nice. Yeah, I have to have those days too, where I just say no to everything. And yes to my bed or yes to just staying at home doing things that I haven't had a chance to catch up on. I love that saying yes to my bed, yes to my body, right? Yeah. Like a really good salt bath or yeah. you know, saying yes to your body in different ways and listening. We struggle. We're like, no, I need to do this. I need to go here. I need to get this done now. Yeah. And I guess um, in our individual check-ins, it's kind of like the collective check-in because the holidays and the demands and the weather and our immune systems. Yeah. But I think you get that almost collective busy vibe that's hard. Like I have to really notice that and everyone, you know, doing all this stuff and putting out all these decorations and feeling like this competition, right? Mm -hmm. This need to perform the way other people are, for example. That's tough for me. That's really tough. Yeah. Deep breath. Okay. Our topic today has gotten me riled up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. We are talking about the bite model. We're coming back full circle to religious trauma that we've introduced a couple episodes ago. Mm -hmm. Right? How long has it been? A few weeks. And so Stacy has brought to my attention this bite model that 
is used in a lot of religions or cults thinking, and it's new for me. So, yeah. you know, I've learned a lot just chatting about it. So do you want to introduce what it is and why it's important model to know? Yeah. So the bite model was created by Stephen Hassan and... He is an author, and he recently circled back around and did a lot with the QAnon cult Mm -hmm. and the Trump cult. He wrote a book about both of those topics, but he created this model to help people figure out if they're in a cult, because he found himself in one, and then he tells the journey of how he was able to get out. I think, you know, my personal understanding of when I say cult is like a system that uses psychological abuse models or manipulation or some kind of coercive control even to get what they want from you. Mm -hmm. I don't know like how you would define it or if there's a real definition that's good, but that's kind of what I'm meaning when I say that word. Yeah, I think cult has always been a very naughty word. Inflammatory word. Yeah, it's been a scary word. It's been a serious word. It's been a word that I don't like to use because it feels too big and too powerful and too Yes, um, we don't want to think people could have that kind of power over our lives. Yeah. Yeah. And in prep for this podcast, I also read the book Cultish by Amanda Montel. And she talks about the word cultish like English or Spanish, just a language and how cults have language. And when we label something a cult subconsciously or part of the unconscious collective, we might lose empathy because we might think, oh, people who join a cult are ridiculous or they're not smart or Mm -hmm. they got taken advantage of and they should have known better. That voice comes out instead of, the empathetic voice of of really connecting to people's loss and connecting to maybe how they could have gotten there. Yeah. Because it is yeah. step by step. Nobody intentionally probably right. signs up for a cult, I would think. Right. And I think, you know, maybe people don't like making this kind of analogy and we don't we don't talk about like Nazi Germany in terms of the word cult, but it's the same mindset. And, you know, if it corrupted and swindled an entire country it is that powerful. Mm -hmm. It is that powerful. These people were good. There were lots of good people. There were lots of very intelligent people, people who even in in lots of degrees knew and didn't like what was going on, but felt they had to comply with this cult. And so, you know, it is a very dangerous mindset. And, and that's why we're, we want to talk about it is to just create more awareness. We, we don't want to demonize any group or specifically people. We know there's so many good people out there. There's so many good people in religion, in cults that are just sometimes being more exploited maybe than they deserve to be. I think the point of us going over the bite model and talking about cults and opening up this conversation is to help people return to themselves. Yes. To gain sovereignty, to get their personal power back, to break the cycles of oppression and get help. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. I think, you know, we often... I think 
feel fear, maybe feel like I don't deserve that kind of power in my life to say that I am the ultimate authority, especially when some outside voice has been that your whole life. So that's a hard mindset to switch. But I think you and I both feel like imperative in in our healing journey is that a person feels like that power is theirs, that they are the sovereign power, like you said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm in charge of me. I'm an adult. I can can do things for myself. It's my choice. Yeah. What feels right, what's authentic, doesn't come from outside of me. I can't do that, right? Mm -hmm. I think that you know, we'll probably bring up more quotes and thoughts by people. But John DeLynn, who who does Mormon Stories podcast says that he thinks it should be illegal that anyone could say they speak for God, for example, because it's just too much power. And that power should be ours. And other people kind of competing for that. Well, this is better. And yes, there's culty things about even people and groups in our profession and in healing modalities, there's cults, right? Yeah, psychics that, that yeah. get special information about you for you. Yes. I mean, that's, yes. that's a really slippery slope. Yes. And we implement that thinking, right? And I think especially when somebody comes across and maybe they do have this awakening of power in themselves, but that's not power over somebody else. Mm-hmm. You can't speak for somebody else. You, yeah. you can't do that healing for them. Even in sessions, sometimes people want to give me their power. What did you get in my yes. body? What did you What do I feel? do next? Yeah. What's the right choice for me? Yeah. I will say what I observed. And I always ask, what did you feel in your body? Because I mm-hmm. want people to identify their own feelings in their own bodies and not leave it to me. Did I notice tension places? Yeah, obviously. But it doesn't matter what I noticed. It matters what you noticed. Yeah, yeah. And I always have to flip that script because people undoubtedly will want to know my opinion on their body and what I felt and what, you know. The the thinking goes deep, right? Maybe mm-hmm. some blind obedience. So let's come back to what does B mean, right? What is the, the steps? Yeah. So BITE is an acronym. The B stands for behavior. The I for information. T for thought, and E for emotion. And behind each of those words will attach control. So behavior control. And so we're going to go through each of those aspects and just talk and give examples and explain further what that means. So yeah, and where we might have seen it show up or, yeah, you know, maybe with other people in our lives too. Yeah, yeah. We might give personal examples, but we're going to just try to keep to defining what behavior control looks like. And maybe as you're listening to this, think of your own examples from your own life first before we tell you our examples, just to kind of get your uh, wheels turning or information from your body, find that access. Yeah. And like you were saying before on a religious trauma introduction, like, you know, if you're coming up with resistance to something like stop and notice. Because I think even when we use this word control, there's this like, no, I'm not being controlled by anything, right? Mm -hmm. And because people don't understand psychological 
coercion and abuse, and they don't realize how powerful it is and why we use words like control. Right. So behavior control is any kind of body terrorism, anything that you do with your body. Sexual control. Yeah. Sex. Appearance. Appearance. Yeah. Look a certain way, dress a certain way. Don't get tattoos. Don't get body piercings, right? Yeah. Those are big ones. Cut your hair just so. Look a certain way. Mm -hmm. Present a certain way. Other types of behavior control might be how you spend your money. Yeah, financial control, right? Financial Financial decisions, Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah, Maybe major life decisions, getting approval for major life decisions, not feeling like that total autonomy in charge of your own behaviors, your own choices. Yeah, absolutely. It's just Uh, obedience, right? This like behavior obedience. How you spend your time. Yep. How you allocate your time. Mm -hmm. So behavior is very uh, huge, encompassing. Yeah. You know, we might give some examples of our own religious experience and that we've alluded to, you know, was from the LDS uh, Mormon Church. And so, you know, even just with time, right, this like coaching to be service oriented and to serve and to serve and to attend all your meetings. And then, you know, was just I think a lot of people feel this drain and this weight of like, I have to do it to be worthy to be, you know, we use words like that, like to be a good practicing Mormon or, you know, the worthiness is linked to my service. Mm -hmm. And that that feels that's a way that they can exploit or control sometimes. Another form of behavior control might be what you eat. Mm-hmm. Might be what you are allowed to consume. Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke. Don't drink tea or coffee. Or you've heard of people going on extreme starvation or water fasts. Maybe you've heard of different self deprivation. Uh huh. A lot of people have found themselves into different sects of veganism where it kind of feels a little cultish, where mm-hmm. all of a sudden it's morally bad to consume certain things. Yeah. Food is morally neutral. Mm -hmm. Substances are morally neutral. We put morality on top of that. Yeah. And there are ways in which, you know, food is distributed and animals are treated and things like that. But there are ethical ways of getting food, but it's not a moral decision. Yeah. And ethics and morals are separate. Right. I would be curious to know, like, if, yeah, people from, like, highly religious or, you know, some of these cultish environments were particularly susceptible to, like, fad diets, Mm -hmm. right? Because of that. Yeah. I know that that was the thing in my family growing up, always a new fad diet that my mom was doing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it has a real link to morality. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So the I in the bite model is information control. This is access to information. It's information that's produced by, like, if I were running a corporation and I gave everybody information to study, but I had also produced the information and they weren't seeking outside sources. You hear a lot with scientific experiments, like make sure it's a double-blinded study, 
because we want to take out the bias, right? So mm-hmm. information control is having control over the narrative, over what information is allowed, maybe even owning news channels or newspapers, magazines, so mm-hmm. that you can control what people are allowed. And that's huge right now with the internet, right? Yeah, people are really up in arms about that. And I think they're really sensitive to that. And for good reason, because they might not realize that they grew up in a society where that information was very doctored or controlled. I remember even to the most personal level being in like a gospel doctrine class, which if you don't know the Mormon church, it's just a a term they use for Sunday school, Sunday school. And they were talking about journaling. And they really talked about how you want to only include things that are faith promoting and that are good, positive things in your life. And I sat there listening to that just like, churning a little bit inside, like, I'm doctoring my personal journal to only include these things? What if I have a grandkid or something that is dealing with this deep depression that I'm feeling? And they Mm -hmm. need to connect with that. And they need to know that they're not alone. And Or this idea, to go off of that, this idea that my personal journal was for posterity and not for myself. Yeah, for somebody else to, yeah, come closer to their religion and not because I need to just be real. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and have a life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, information control can be really big because we're bombarded with information in this day and age from our phones to every single media outlet to advertising And so if there's a chance that that is being controlled by a very specific narrative, I mean, we've seen how destructive that has been in the last election and how things have been flipped on the political scale and a nation has been seriously divided. So much violence, things we couldn't even imagine have been able to happen because of information control. Yeah. And it's a real weaponry. And that we know it happens, I think a lot of people assume then everyone's doing it too. And they just feel like, I don't know who to trust. Even when, if they're reading something that is very, you know, trying to be handed very neutrally or to show some of the both sides that are really going on and try to be objectively educational, they distrust that information. Yeah. And so we don't know what information to listen to, right? You know, in specifically the LDS church, I remember that, you know, we were conditioned not to read or look at anything that didn't originate with the church or wasn't approved sometimes by the first presidency. Was that approved by the first presidency? It's kind of like Mm -hmm. the, the question people ask, is that like an official position of the church? And if it's not, then there's room for discreditation. Yeah. Because the information comes from one source. So information control, it seeps into a lot of other areas because you might behave differently. You might do things differently with the information that you have, which leads us to the T and the bite model, which is thought control. Mm -hmm. So the information that you get is then what you think about. Yeah. And... There are thought techniques, there's hypnosis, there's chanting, singing, there's monitoring your thoughts. So repetition, right? Repetition. Repetition. 
you know, the, the labeling of it, right? Mm-hmm. This we talked about this thought is a bad thought. This thought is worthy or is is good, right? Is of God or is of this higher order that I belong to. And so, yeah, we label them, right? As something either good for you or not good for you. But that again comes from one authority source, right? Instead of what do you think it is? Is this a good or bad thought for you? Mm -hmm. The cognitive dissonance that it creates when you might not even be able to trust your own thoughts, because if your thoughts don't align with the information, Mm -hmm. then there's this separation of self where my thoughts must be in the bad category. So thought control is being afraid of your own thoughts, your own ability to think independently, because it might not fit into the information narrative that you've been given. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really the main outcome, like you said, is the lack of trust to my own thoughts, even. And I think this is fundamentally where a lot of our chronic anxiety comes from, is this need to control our thoughts. Mm -hmm. When thoughts are firing off random in every person's brain, neurologically, because of things we see or exposed to or memories or even subconscious, and they're just meant to be Observed. Observed, and they self-liberate. We think, I have to do something with every thought. And that's what bite model or, you know, kind of thought control does is makes you feel like you have to control the thoughts that you have or do something with them. When I used to work with moms, I was very big in postpartum advocacy. And there's a lot of postpartum mood disorders that get summed up in one category of postpartum depression. And that's not true. There's several mood disorders that accompany postpartum mood disorder spectrum. And one of those can be OCD, where you have a thought that goes on repetition. And often people don't report that because they don't seek the help because it's so shameful to have a thought and they think, my children will be taken away, or I'll be separated, I'll be institutionalized. But one of the key points is a thought is just a thought. And once I heard a therapist say that, and like, feel liberated and helping mothers seek help, a thought is just a thought, you didn't do the thought. It's just a thought, you don't have to identify with it. It doesn't make you a bad mother. You don't have to associate (laughs) with it. It doesn't mean that you're going to follow through with that. It's just a thought. Yes. And, And that's really important, because it usually comes back to even a need like like it's myself trying to also advocate for me like yeah I remember having this one client that was just terrified that she had this thought once and this was more of a random situation she's like my kid wasn't misbehaving they weren't being obnoxious and I had this thought what if I threw them over this ledge you know and I was like yeah (laughs) and right like that that sounds like a, a random thought any person could have. Yeah. But she she took that and she she kind of planted it, it and internalized it. Mm-hmm. What if I do something like that? What what does this mean mm-hmm. instead of, oh, that was just this random thing, let it go. You the know? first time I saw the Grand Canyon, one of my first thoughts is, what if I jumped off? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's would that be like? a really common thought <laughs> because you're looking at this huge Yeah, huge. And maybe even exploring your power in Mm -hmm. that moment of like, I have the ability right now to to even 
you know, heave myself into this chasm, you mm-hmm. know? It's just a thought. It's just a thought. Yes. And we can think lots of different things and we don't have to attach meaning or identity or anything to a thought. Guilt, shame, yeah. right? That's a, that's part of the, the thought controls. Attaching then the emotions to them, which comes to the E, right? The but E in the bite model The shame and guilt that we attach to the thought, right? Yeah. And labeling certain emotions are bad. If you feel this way, don't seek that out. Yeah. Well, what do we know now is that it's important to be in uncomfortable situations to grow, to gain empathy. We need to feel uncomfortable. Yep. It is not comfortable to feel a lot of feelings. Right. And that's okay. Because we grow in those uncomfortable spaces. We learn about ourselves. We learn about humanity when we emote and and experience empathy. I think one dangerous thing that I did feel, you know, in my religious experience and still today, and that is also a cult feature and can be a business, it can be, you know, like we talked about, uh, you know, a yoga group, it can, it can be used in a lot of different things, but that it's kind of like your emotions are manipulated against you instead of, giving you this really vital information. So we don't trust the uncomfortable feelings. We don't trust them. We think that that means I'm doing something wrong and we immediately want to shut it down and not go that way, right? Or there's this kind of religious narrative of you just need to pray more and that will be taken away. You know, your your burden will be lifted or something. Pray away your emotions. Yeah. And that's not what they were meant for, right? They don't go away that way. I've never seen a person heal that way. They're really vital. And I think even using these emotions like shame and guilt to get their desired outcome versus what they're really meaning to say. A lot of the shame that we feel, it's trying to communicate to us that we're actually being manipulated and lied to. And instead of what they want it to mean, right? And what they're Mm -hmm. telling us it means. And so it's this kind of compounding negative cycle where you're saying it means something else, which then creates more shame and you're just stuck in this negative Mm -hmm. loop. As I've been trying to gain emotional intelligence, I've realized that I operating off of about three emotions. And there's a whole spectrum of emotions. And once I can learn to identify and label and feel things, because there's a big difference between shame, guilt, anger, I just put a lot of things into a couple of categories. But there's enthusiasm, and there's hope. And they feel different. There's excitement, there's anxiety, those all feel different. To emotionally manipulate people, you play off a few certain emotions. Fear and shame are the biggest things being played off of mm-hmm. and instilling mm-hmm. that fear. Yeah. But but then also on the flip side, right, a lot of people stay there because the emotion of belonging and community and connection too, right? Mm-hmm. Like kind of the flip side of that as well. Like I think, again, personal experiences, but my religion taught you're supposed to get baptized at age eight, right? We kind of talked about, you know, that's really not that different from infancy, but (laughs) they're like, well, no, you have the agency. We want to wait so that you can make a choice. Well, 
it's not seen where people say, no, I don't want to get baptized yet. So there's a fear there of like, I can't be the only one doing something different. But also this emotional acceptance and belonging Mm -hmm. that they're then celebrated and they're making their family happy and proud. Mm -hmm. And that is very powerful. And it's okay if you, at age eight, you're still in imagination realm, if you want to do things to make your family happy and proud. But what's not okay is turning that around and and saying, I'm so proud of so-and-so for making the decision Mm -hmm. to do this. They're not making a decision. They're doing what they think would make you feel proud. Yep. And there's a big difference there. And it is very powerful. And it is a form of control. And whether or not that, again, that was the intent, it is a form of emotional exploitation, emotional extortion in a way. Yeah. And I think we just need to be more cautious of that, that we we aren't taking power away from people, even children. The young children, yeah. yeah. Emotions are very powerful. They're very evocative. Good art should promote feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Good media should promote feelings. Because a lot of people spend so much time on these projects so that we can feel, and yet we avoid feeling. Yeah. You know, that's interesting you bring art into it because I do think, again, it separates this, what what's it really meant for? You know, art is a self-expression. Like if I do art, I do writing, I do something like that, that's me putting myself out into the world. And not everyone's going to like it. Not everyone's going to connect with it. But we have this civilization that judges it by objective standards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, even in an art class, you know, you expression. I remember my ex partner coming back from like a photography class and he was talking about how they have to do this and people kind of nitpick it. And I'm like, that makes no sense to me. Do you like it? What does it say to you? What why did you choose this piece? How does it make you feel? Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what other people say. It's too dark. It's too it it doesn't show enough of this aspect like that's sure they can have that opinion but then they can apply that to their own art if they feel like that's something anyway it tangent but it it is really something interesting that we even judge a person's emotions right mm-hmm. yeah so the bite model this introduction is just to give you guys a template for what this means how to figure out if if you're giving away your power, your sovereignty, so that you can return to your personal power. In part two, we're going to basically do a tell-all of ways that we've experienced these to give you some context. Maybe you'll find it to be relatable. We want you to take that deep dive internally and just kind of think this week of the bite model. And then next week, we're going to do a deep dive Um, with our own personal experiences. Yeah, I think that it might be a little more personal and triggering, just a heads up. But yeah, yeah, look for these, the behavior, information, thought, emotional tactics and manipulation things. They can be in things like your work environment. They can be in the school system. Teachers use them too. And they use them on children. You know, I've heard of these kids sometimes, well, they're now adults, but they're processing child trauma from a teacher who, you know, publicly shamed them in front of the class. And to try to get a desired outcome for the rest of the class to use their poor work, for example, as a bad example. Yeah. 
This is happening in your life, this model, and how you lessen it is you take back your power. So just observe, and then we'll see you next week. We're excited to dive deeper. Thanks for joining us.